Let's stand over our Bibles, Exodus chapter 1 this morning. Exodus chapter 1, we'll begin reading verse 5. I want to start a new series that coincides with our last one. God is working even when we don't see it. And we'll work our way through a few chapters here in Exodus. Exodus 1 verse 5, And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already. Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. There rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. We all know the context here of this moment in Israel's history. Joseph had been sold into slavery and through God's miraculous working had arrived there second only to Pharaoh in the palace and had saved Egypt uh, from starvation. In the midst of that, his family had come and uh, they had set up there in the valley and we see that they had flourished. When they came into the land, 70 plus souls that arrived. And now they number at this point in their history, a million and a half to two million souls. And that's why the Bible says they were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied. They waxed exceeding mightily. They filled the land. What an incredible event that had taken place. And we know that was God and the fulfillment of his promises and his word. The problem was that it become very dark, very bleak, very quickly. And that's when they would begin to doubt God and his presence and his promises and his working. And I want to encourage everyone over the next few weeks. Uh, it's easy at some point in life uh, when, when circumstances change. And we don't see God is clearly at work. That doesn't mean he stopped working. That doesn't mean he's absent. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. It simply means that we don't see uh, him as clearly as we did in the moments when obviously the windows of heaven were open and he was pouring out or is pouring out his blessing. Now, here's what's amazing. There are so many things as I've read these chapters repeatedly over the past few weeks so many things that highlight the hand of God, the presence of God, and those that don't see God as they live out these circumstances, it's a simple refusal, a hardness of the heart, a choice that says, no matter what God does, I refuse to admit that he is actually working. And uh, look what it says in verse 10, as Pharaoh plots, he says, come on. 
Let us deal wisely with them. Now, this man would not have arrived into his position of power had he not been wise according to the world's standards. And he's going to put together the greatest minds uh, that he has in the kingdom. But he is sitting with them, formulating a plan, and says in his worldly wisdom, let's deal what? Wisely with them. And he did have a pretty good plan. The only problem is, Proverbs 21, 30, there's no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. Isn't it amazing to think that we actually at times are convinced that someone on this earth can thwart God's plans, override his promises. Now, this is an unsaved man that doesn't believe in Jehovah God, so we can understand his confusion but here's what we see in these chapters. We're going to see uh, a continued pattern uh, of the Jews, the nation of Israel, God's people, doubting God because he's not working as obviously or clearly as they expect him to as quickly as they would like. And I want to talk about our circumstances. Let's take a look at these verses, their circumstances, compare them to our circumstances, maybe not at the moment, but in the past or possibly in the future, what would cause us to doubt the goodness of God? The last thing you want to do in your spiritual walk is to doubt the goodness of God. How are you willing to be honest this morning and say, I've had moments, maybe brief, maybe prolonged, where I doubted the goodness of God? Three honest people and a whole lot of talk. I'm thankful. The same three that raise their hand twice a year. The rest are the ones that really need this message this morning. Here's what often causes us to doubt the, the goodness of God. Look at verse 7, the children of Israel. They were fruitful. They were increased uh, abundantly, multiplied, waxed exceeding mighty. The land was filled with them. Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, and in his plan, and what does he do, verse 11? Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters with what purpose? To afflict them. Now, when life suddenly changes from good to bad, it's easy to doubt the goodness of God. Here they are flourishing. Hard to believe that a, that a people that number 70 to 75 in a country, a foreign country, suddenly find themselves uh, averaging a, a population of over a million and a half. Yep. They came in uh, dealing with starvation and uh, suddenly they find themselves rich and they find themselves dominating this area of Egypt uh, to such a degree that it causes concern in the heart of the king. And uh, Joseph and his great fame now for centuries has, has helped pave the path to their success. But here's what the Bible says. There arose a new king or Egypt which knew not Joseph. And suddenly when circumstances of life had changed and uh, everything that was in our favor is no longer in our favor, maybe friendships or politics, or a boss or a company that favored us, uh, suddenly we find ourselves with a new boss, uh, a new political leader, uh, a, a different authority figure, someone in our lives that instead of facilitating our life, 
they are, it, it's like their sole purpose is to complicate our life. You know what we begin to do? Uh, we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And the Bible says that uh, Joseph, verse 6, died, his brethren, and all that generation. I am finding myself at this stage of life, uh, those heroes that I had uh, in my youth, uh, those men that had the touch of God, the power of God, and the presence of God, men of prayer, and men that stood up in the pulpit and uh, thundered forth the Word of God. I'm talking about before this generation of teachers, a generation of Bible preachers, fearless, amen. Uh, those are quickly dying off. And I thank God for a handful of those men that are left. Uh, Tom Williams, uh, nearing 90, Dr. Sisk, in his 90s, he's, these men, they're just a handful that are left. But guess what? With their passing and their death doesn't mean God died. And just because Joseph, now in their eyes, there was no bigger figure. Uh, th this really was, was a man that had opened up so many doors for them and his continued fame is what kept them in good standing with the leaders of, of Egypt. He's dead. His brethren are dead. That entire generation is dead. And let me just say this before we move on because it's not the purpose of the message this morning. Uh, young people, that philosophy, that work ethic, that touch of God, that kind of prayer life, that shouldn't die with the passing of a previous generation. There was a commitment among Independent Baptist Church members in years past. There was a belief in holiness in years past. Regrettably, that that belief and that commitment and that dedication and that kind of holy living has died with that generation. The problem is the principles have not died. The Word of God is still true, amen. The Holy Spirit is still at work. Saying the other day, uh, talking to a missionary, and he, he said, you know what? Soul winning just doesn't work in our country. I said, what do you, what do you mean soul winning? He said, just any general means of evangelism. So, so what are you doing? Why would you even stay? If that is your philosophy, what are you doing on the field? Well, I'm thankful that you have voiced that so I can voice to others that you don't believe in soul winning. Amen? Just because that generation has died doesn't mean God has died or his Holy Spirit has died or his power has died. But things have quickly changed and it's become obvious uh, this, this new leader wants to enslave them. And he's going to take them from their work and their fields and their flocks and put them to work, uh, provide them taskmasters. And here they are, sun up till sundown, working with rigor. They're, they're trying to complicate their lives, not just make them work and give them pay, but they're literally trying to afflict these people with the tasks that are given. And there's a task, master with a whip, waiting with pleasure to dole out the lashes. And church, here's what you got to understand. We look at Egypt uh, over the next few weeks. These principles that you've known your entire Christian life, Egypt still has a purpose of enslaving Christians. And this is a generation that is not resisting uh, the enslavement, they're embracing it. 
We have more Christians working with rigor for the world than working with rigor for God. To get them to dedicate an hour or two to the house of God and the work of God, the pastor would have to dole out lashes. And if he asks for any kind of commitment, he's considered a taskmaster. But this world can ask for 50, 60, 70 hours. And with great joy, honey, I'm getting overtime this week. Double time, triple time. I know it's just Christmas Eve, but I'll be here for Christmas. Amen. It's sad that Christians embrace the enslavement of Egypt because they're not afflicted as long as it pays enough and provides enough. I'm fine with the enslavement. They're still out to enslave God's people. They're still out to destroy our children. You know what's next in this chapter? The king says, our only hope is to kill their babies. Now he talks to the midwives and he says, if that's a boy... If that's a man child, I want you to snuff out his life as soon as he's born. And then when they say, well, we've just not been successful with that, he says, chuck him in the river. Mm-hmm. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine, we know how abortion is thrived in our nation, yeah. but it's not commanded. Can you imagine what would happen in Christianity if we know our government uh, was saying, man, child, that child's going to be aborted, and if he survives birth, he's going to be thrown in the river. How many Christians would be having babies? But this nation and these people were still multiplying. Did you read that verse? I mean, God, okay, when God's redundant, he's redundant on purpose. Let's, let's read this one more time. The children, verse 7, were fruitful. He could have left it at that. No. They increased abundantly, could have left it at that. No, multiplied, waxed exceeding mightily. The land was filled. God said, did you get the picture? Okay, we're we're not talking about money here. When when the American mind thinks of success, he thinks in terms of dollar bills. That's almost exclusively the way the American mind thinks. The blessings of God are calculated by self-worth, net worth. Bank accounts, retirement accounts, square footage of the house, money in the bank. God God said, hold on for a second. We're talking about the Israelites here, and he's saying we're we're talking about their children were multiplied. You don't want to preach that in a Baptist church. People get nervous real quickly. And here's what happened. The king said, uh, we've, we've got to end that and end that quickly. And uh, things have changed. I mean, one minute, literally, in, in Israel, there in Egypt, they're living the good life. And the next thing you know, the, the king is saying, guess what? You guys no longer work for yourselves. You're no longer self-employed. You're working for me, and I'm going to make your lives miserable, and I'm going to decrease your population, and I'm going to kill your babies. Can you imagine? You're living your life fine and dandy, and, and it's nearly perfect at this moment in a strange land, and suddenly, what are you going to tell your children? I want grandchildren, but not at this threat. You know, you better be wise. The best thing you can do is just go to work, 
and don't complain and things are suddenly drastically different, guess what happens? You begin to doubt God in heaven and the goodness of God. In this life, when you have those perfect moments, enjoy them. Don't be a defeatist. Don't be a negative personality. Don't look for darkness around every corner. But we know good times don't last forever. Christmas is in the every day of the year. I know people, they wait all year for three days. Birthday, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. I mean, it's just one hold your breath after another till, till we roll around for Christmas. And oh, what a bummer if your birthday falls in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because you only got 35 days out of the whole year that are worth living. That's right. We know you blink your eye and Christmas is over. You gained 10 pounds, yes. your blood sugar shot up 100 points, and here comes the doctor visit. No, here's what happens. Life seems to be good, and then you walk into the doctor, and he tells you, oh, you look healthy, but you're not. You may feel healthy, but you're not. You got problems. And next thing you know, you've, you've reared that child, loved God, and served God, and you thought, you thought you had principles deeply ingrained in their DNA, and you believe they love God. You believe they're going to serve God and do right all the days of their life. Next thing you know, not only is their spirit changed, but they're willing to tell you, Dan, your God is not my God. I'm, I am thankful for this church, and I'm thankful for the parents, and I brag on the parents of this church all the time. And I thank God for the educational ministry and each ministry in this church. But every child has to some point in their life make their own choices, and you cannot determine their future. I wish... I wish life was that simple. If it were, listen, if it were that simple, someone would have figured it out by now and sold it in a bottle. Amen. $5.99. You take the pill and this child lives for God all the days of their life. And I'm all for family devotions. I'm all for godly living. I'm all for you setting an example. But at the end of the day, they have their own heart that they must keep right with God and make choices for the rest of their life. And what a stunning moment that so many have experienced in life when they thought their life was perfect and their kids love God only to wake up and find the drastic, stark reality that that child was going a different direction. And then you know what happens? We begin to doubt God. How is it that if we did this, and how is it if, if we followed the word of God, and how is it if we prayed over that child, and how is it that God could be good and yet we watch our world unravel when you're taking care of a parent that's going downhill very quickly. You uh, receive the word that someone that you love dearly has passed. Whatever, whatever it is in life, when you go from, we, we almost live daily accommodating life like a kitchen shelf, putting everything in its place Looking for perfection. And life doesn't work that way. 
And suddenly when something is broken, when, when pain happens, we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And they went from some amazing circumstances to suddenly they're waking up at 4.30, getting ready to go to the field and saying, am I getting lashes today? How many curse words do I have to hear? I can't, I can't even afford to keep my sheep any longer. I'm going to have to sell every one just to maintain and, and pay the bills. Life had changed drastically for them. Number two, uh, look what it says in verse nine. He said to his people, this is the new leader, the new king. Behold the people, the children of Israel. They're more, they're mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when, they, uh, that when they're falleth out anymore. Here's what he's doing. He's just imagining mischief and evil in them. And he's the one that's evil. So he literally says, we're going to have job interview. And uh, I, want to, I want some men that are cruel and cold-hearted. I want men that know how to crack a whip and open the flesh on a back. I want men that know how to strike fear. And you're not stern enough. And you're not mean enough. And you're not hurtful enough. You're not hateful enough. I, I need to see blood on your whip. I need your voice to strike terror in their hearts. I need you to know that you're a part of my team that afflicts. That's evil. Here's what happens. When we see evilness in men, it causes us to doubt the goodness of God. And whether that's in a political leader or just a leader or a boss, someone that we never expected to see, evil is in the heart of every man. But that untamed evil, that evil without the restriction of the Holy Spirit of God, when we see that in the heart of a man, you know what it does? It causes, especially when it affects you. Not so much when it's in North Korea, it's halfway around the world, and it's someone else, and it's another Christian in a concentration camp. It's someone else suffering in China. It's someone else that uh, I just read this week that uh, in Nigeria, a hundred Christians were murdered on Christmas Day just uh, for those terrorists to laugh and mock and post photos and say, uh, you have no God, our God is greater. Can you imagine men so evil that go out on Christmas Day? to massacre a hundred followers of Christ. That's evil. But this world is filled with evil. And here's what they're doing. They had distanced themselves from God. And here's why Moses had to say, when, when I come to lead them out, uh, God, who, who do I even say uh, you are? What is your name? These are people so far from God. They, they couldn't even identify God, many of them, although they were God's chosen People, they had lived in Egypt that Egypt now lived in, so long Egypt now lived inside of them. And here's what happens. God's going to have to use all these circumstances. And when we say God's at work, even when we can't see it, they, they had wandered a long ways away from God. And God now has a purpose. That's why this book is called Exodus, right? He wants them out of Egypt. Let me ask you this. When life was good and their, their whole circumstances were positive and they were thriving and multiplying, do you think that God could have sent Moses and said, let's leave? They would have laughed. They would have mocked. They would have scorned and said, what are you talking about? 
You know why we don't have more people going to the mission field? Life is too perfect right here. I, I mean, we got everything in our favor right here. You know what these young people know? I mean to tell you, his parents, they have been provided every want, every primary need, every secondary need, every imaginary need, and to walk away from any of those comforts or any of those blessings. And here's what the Israelites were doing. They were sitting in Egypt, and God says, I want you out. And if under those perfect circumstances, he would have sent Moses, there would have been a national resistance to this man and God's will. And God says, here's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to give you a gift that gets you to cry out and to learn to pray. A desire to leave Egypt. You know what's deep in the heart of the average Christian? A love for Egypt that God can't even work through. God says, I have a plan. And you say, I love Egypt. And God says, I have a perfect will for you. And you say, I love Egypt. And God says, I want to do something with your life. And you say, I love Egypt. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the Christian. And here's what God did. God allowed them the very thing that would cause them to doubt the goodness of God was actually working in their favor. You love the king and he's not someone you should be in love with. Isn't it amazing? We saw this under president. You see people who begin to put their hope in a politician or a political leader and, and they think some conservative voice, whether that's a mayor or a governor or a president or a senator, whatever political position or power they hold, someone, you watch their face light up. We have a new governor as if, <laughs> as if that man, as if that political leader was literally going to change your world for the better in you don't see people, their faces light up about God. Well, God's in power. Matter of fact, if a preacher says that, they just look like, and so what? Tell me about who's going to be the next president. Guess what? This crazy, wicked, evil man was, was more a part of God's plan, and these people come and settled themselves and, and made themselves comfortable and sunk roots so deep, God said, I'm going to have to cut off the roots. And here's how I do it. I'm going to allow a man that literally is pure evil from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, this man only wants to hurt and afflict and lash and cause pain. But here's what he's doing. He's helping me cut the roots that you have planted so deep in Egypt. He's going to, listen, when someone threatens your baby, they become your enemy. They can threaten your spouse and you'll clap your hands and say, take them off the planet. <laughs> They've threatened your friends. You may join them, but they threaten your children. Now you're going to pay. That woman will attack you with the straw on a McDonald's cup. She'll slap you with a purse, kick you in the shin hard enough to make you bleed. You have a king now that is pure evil, but God's going to use that. Look what it says in verse 14. What else would cause us to doubt the goodness of God? 
They made their lives, what? Bitter. Bitter. With hard bondage. In mortar. I, I've, seen, I've seen this happen, and it doesn't even compare to what's going on in Egypt. Okay? You gotta understand a king with absolute power. And he says, he gathers his leaders, leaders together and says, here's my plan. I want no more multiplication. So we're going to eliminate their babies, their boy babies. Only have girls, and they can marry our boys. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to wake them up early. We're going to work them hard all day. We're going to send them home late. We're going to pay them just with rations enough to keep them alive. And every day is to see how miserable we can make their lives. And the Bible says, every day became bitter. Now, I've talked to Christians who work for companies that pay their checks. They work 40 hours a week and they become bitter. They don't even give me a bonus. I'm only making 28 bucks an hour. You're only worth 22. Go get my hug. That's good preaching. And when you say you, they make you work 40 hours a week, you only give them about 22 decent hours. You found, listen, you have found so many places to hide, so many ways to avoid hard labor. And the biggest calluses on your body are ones hidden by your pants. That they're not really making you work with rigor. That's right. But I've watched people grow bitter. You know why they grow bitter? Because they look around and say, well, they brought in a new guy. He's not even as smart as I am. He's not even as experienced. And they're paying four bucks an hour more than me. And people, people get bitter. Now, these people are not like American employees. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're drinking the bitter tea. I mean, it's like some of you go straight to Starbucks in the morning. You give me as black and as bitter as possible because I want to become more of what I drink. <laughs> I, I want to become bitter. I want to become harsh. And that's, that's what was taking place here. But the difference was they had a real reason to become yes. bitter because literally these Egyptian taskmasters were saying our sole purpose is to make your life horrific. And here's what happens. In life, we begin to doubt the goodness of God when we suffer anything as his child. Now, here's the problem. We, we believe this lie. Well, I can't believe. I'm a good Christian. Look what I go through. Did you just say that? Now, let me ask you this. I've had people ask me before, a pastor, 430 years. I mean, the Bible says when God delivered them from Egypt, literally, it, the Bible says to the day. Mm -hmm. 430 years, exactly as God had prophesied, his word was fulfilled. To the day, they walked out of Egypt. But someone asked, why 430 years? Have you ever heard the law of sowing and reaping? And here's what God says about sowing and reaping. Here's why Here's what ought to be one of the greatest motivations in all life. He talks about to the third and fourth generation. 
when, when I look at my son and my children, when I look at my grandson and grandchildren to come, and when I look at great-grandchildren that I hope to have and to hold one day in the future, I can't imagine them reaping what I sowed decades previously. Uh, you did hear about 10 boys that took a brother, took a brother, and sold him into what? They, they sold him into slavery, and now they get a reap, and their children get a reap, and their grandchildren get a reap, and their great-grandchildren get a reap, because God says, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also you better remember that. Here's where people get bitter at God. God, I just don't understand. Why would you punt? No, 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 no. This isn't a matter of punishment. This is a matter of sowing and reaping. They got a lot of reaping to do. The problem is their children are going to reap and their grandchildren are going to reap. We don't like suffering. How many realize? How many realize? We have some precious promises from Scripture. <laughs> One of those is an imperfect life on this earth. Right? On a sin-cursed planet. And to think that we've swallowed the devil's lie and to think that we're going to go through life without any of the problems. We hear about those problems and think, I'm so glad that's them. Well, to think that you're not going to pass through one of those valleys or several of those valleys or deal with several of those heartaches and suddenly they find themselves when your life's been good and you find yourselves out there working, uh, making bricks for an angry man whose only purpose is to afflict you. You know what you're going to do? Doubt the goodness of God. Now, let's look at chapter 2, verse 11 here. I know we're jumping ahead, but I think it, it needs stated this morning. What else would cause us to doubt the goodness of God? We know Moses now uh, is being raised in the palace, but God has already begun the process of providing Israel with a future leader. Verse 11, came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. He went out to his brethren. He looked on their burdens. He spied an Egyptian, spied a Hebrew, one of his brethren. He looked this way, that way. When he saw there's no man, he slew the Egyptian. He hit him in the sand. When he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews drove together. He said to him that did wrong, wherefore smite us out thy fellow. And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Verse 15, Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. You know another thing that causes us to doubt the goodness of God? The failure of good intentions. Here's what happens in life. We've got some pretty good ideas. We know God plans to use us. And we say, well, you know, I, I think this is what I ought to do. I think this is the way to deal with this problem. I, I think I can solve this. And then it turns out not just wrong, but really wrong. And instead of blessing someone, we blow it up. Instead of helping someone, we hurt them. Well, uh, Pastor, you know, I was, just, I was just trying to do this for the glory of God. Maybe not for the glory of God, but anyways, go ahead and help yourself. Maybe it's for the glory of self. But whatever it is, you know what happens in life? I, 
I don't believe a majority of Christians have evil intentions. Oh, occasionally Satan gets someone all twisted up and make them hateful, hurtful, and bitter, and we understand that. But and let, let's be honest this morning. How many of your mistakes in life were made with good intentions? How many ever gave a Christmas gift? And someone opens up the package and looks at what you gave and says, what kind of sick joke is this? <laughs> no, you're, you're doing your best and your intentions were pure and your heart was right and what you thought was going to be helping a blessing to someone else. Josiah, you've done this with dad. I'll get the tractor out and I'll mow the yard. But in that endeavor... You hit three sprinkler heads. And now there's water flowing all over the property. And it's 60 miles to the closest lows to replace those sprinkler heads. And you broke the blade in that endeavor. Remember, years ago, uh, Kim and I were at a church in Center, Texas, and uh, uh, staying with this widow. And I thought, we'll help fix things up around the house and mow the yard and uh, I got out there in the riding mower, and we're buzzing around getting things done. And all of a sudden, I hear, whack! And the mower's making a weird noise. That blade had somehow managed to come off of that mower, and she had plastic siding on the side of that house, and went right through the siding <laughs> of that house. And I turn off that mower, and I'm looking at Man, I thought it was going to be a blessing to this woman. <laughs> you're, you're looking, okay, this was supposed to be a help and a favor and a blessing. And here's what happens in life. A lot of things that we try to do with good intentions, they don't work out. And Moses, he, he, he knows he's supposed to be the deliverer. He thinks he's doing the right thing. And 40 years later, he finds himself still hiding in the backside of a desert. I'm eliminated from God's plan. And uh, I don't think he's going to use me at this point. Now, let's look at one more thing we're done. Look at verse 9. Look what it says in verse 9. He, the king, said to the people, Behold, the people, the children of Israel, they are more and mightier than, than we. Come on. Uh, you know what causes doubt the goodness of God? Envy in the heart. Now, we understand this. A lost man, we're, we're, dealing, we're dealing with the saved. He doesn't even believe in the goodness of God. He doesn't believe in God. But it's natural, a natural tendency to look around and someone that has more or someone that is mightier, he these people were not a realistic threat to Egypt at this moment. We know because of hindsight. We've read the book. We've heard messages preached. We know God's plan and God's hand in all of this. But I'm talking about man's natural tendency. And here's what we do. We have a thankful heart where God's been good to me. And we measure, once again, everything according to the visible and everything that is material. And God's been good to me and I've got a new car Seven years of payments on it, but I praise God for that. $956 a month, but thank God for that. And uh, God's, God's been good. I don't think I'd want to measure uh, the goodness of God based on everything you've accumulated over your lifetime with your monthly payments. God's been good to me because look at this. 
2,800 square feet of debt and uh, 30 years to pay it off if I ever reach that point. And uh, thank, that's the way we measure the goodness of God. But here's what happens. We're happy about the goodness of God until we visit someone else with 3,800 square feet. Why don't you talk to their poor wife and what it takes to clean that place? Well, take a walk around your life. She doesn't clean the place. <laughs> but here's what happens. You're, you're convinced of the goodness of God uh, because of that 2018 with leather seats until you climb in a friend's car that's a 2023 uh -oh. with a heated steering wheel. In a vehicle, you can take your hands off the wheel and it stays in its own lane. I'm going to check this out when it comes to a curve. Look at that. It turns with the road. It's magic, kids. It was magic. No, we believe in the goodness of God until God is gooder with someone else, especially if they don't qualify for the extended goodness. God, if you're going to be gooder with someone, some of you look at me like, don't worry about Miss Simpson. She understands the context of my English this morning. The gooderness of God. How do you like that? And you've got to quantify the gooderness of God. But Lord, I mean to tell you, they don't really deserve that kind of goodness. I mean, if you want to give them a rig, but at least make it a 2010 with some dents. And if you want to give them that kind of house, that's okay. But I hope the tile in that place is so outdated they never enjoy it. God, some of you acting like, I've never thought like that. We're happy with the goodness of God as long as it's in our favor. And it's got to be, I mean, I can understand how Tom Williams has a nicer place because he loved God and served God and sacrificed his whole life. And here's what happens. We're looking at a Pharaoh. We're looking out there saying, they're too big. They're too mighty. They're too multiplied. They're too blessed. Forget Pharaoh. I'm talking about you. Yes, sir. And as soon as you look at someone and say, God, I've sacrificed and I don't drive that kind of car and I serve you and my kids aren't doing that well and I've given to missions and I have less and I've done the right thing and I barely made it to church this morning and God I've never been more committed and this is the only suit in my whole closet be careful Here's what we need to do. I'm going to ask you, read Exodus with me. Maybe just the first 15 chapters. I know everyone has a Bible reading schedule. Keep your schedule, whatever your plan is. I, I learned a long, long time ago. I would encourage you to read your Bible through in a year. But, but I learned this, Nate, a long time ago. You know what helped me? You get in the Word of God till the Word of God gets in you. You get in the Word of God, and you ask the Holy Spirit of God to work it inside of you and speak to you. 
What if, you, what if you took the next few weeks and you read with Pastor Exodus and said, God, I want to see your hand at work, not just in the life of the Israelites, but in my life. And when I come to the crisis, I want to identify your hand and your work, even when my eyes cannot see the visible, mighty hand of God at work. And here's what we're going to see. God's working. God's planning. He's not scheming. He's not plotting. He's simply saying, I made a promise. Now is the time. I, I was reading this week and something I had never noticed my Bible. I mean, Pastor Robert, that he, he tells them, I'm delivering you once uh, the fullness of the evil of the Amorites has come. God said, even the heathen nation, the Amorites, there in Canaan, you're not walking in till my patience has run out. God is that thorough in his plots and plans and preparation. He's not waking up like we do and say, okay, what are we going to do today? How are we going to make this work? What's the plan? It was like the kids, when they ask you the week of Christmas, so dad, what's Christmas plan? I don't know, eat fudge. That's a pretty good plan to me. That's not God's plan. And here's what God's doing. God is thoroughly planned their exodus, and he's got to put some things in order, and he's got to detach them from, from Egypt. And here's the biggest problem God has, not getting his people out of Egypt. Yeah, you know what's coming. It's getting Egypt out of his people. And he's going to do exactly what it takes to fulfill his plan. Father, we pray this morning.